Welcome everyone to Creating a Family, talk about adoption and foster care. Today we're going to be talking about a hard subject, uh, adoption dissolutions, specifically how to prevent and when to accept and what to do when they become inevitable. This is a topic that gets a lot of attention in the media uh, and also gets a lot of attention by adoptive parents. We're going to be talking today with Dr. Richard Barth. He is the Dean of the School of Social Work and a professor at the University of Maryland School of Social Work. He has conducted research in the area of adoption and adoption dissolution. We'll also be talking with Steve Hayes. Steve has been a litigator for more than 35 years with Grady, Hayes, and Neary in Milwaukee, specializing in adoption and foster care. He is a member of the Academy of Adoption and Assisted Reproduction Attorneys and has been recognized in Best Lawyers in America and Wisconsin Super Lawyers. Welcome, Rick and Steve, to Creating a Family. Thanks, Don. Great to be on. All right. Um, as I said, this is a um, this is a tough to- this is a tough topic. It's also one that, that I think it, it, it captures it captures people outside of the adoption world's attention too. So we see more media coverage uh, of it uh, than in other areas of adoption. Um, Steve, can you start by helping us understand the distinction between adoption dissolution and adoption disruption? Sure. With a, an adoption dissolution means that there has been a completed adoption and now some sort of legal effort is being made to end the adoption itself and create, I'm going to say, hopefully a new family for the child, although sometimes it results in institutionalization. Mm -hmm. Disrupted adoption is a placement that is headed, at least in the minds of the, probably the child and the family, depending on the age of the child, toward an adoption things do not work out and they end up going off that track and there is no adoption. So that would be a disruption of an adoption process. And we more often would see disruptions seldom happen in international adoption because the adoptions are finalized usually shortly after the parents and the children meet. But we would see a disruption more frequently in foster care adoptions because their child is living with the family, usually depending on the state, for at least six months before the adoption is finalized. So, um, so that's the, that is the distinction. I, it's so confusing to people that honestly, I, I sometimes just refer to them as failed adoptions, but um, it's important to, to, to make the distinction. Um, Rick, let's now talk about you have been you have been one of the lead researchers in the area of adoption dissolution and adoption disruptions. So I would like to talk about what the research shows. One of my frustrations as somebody who is often digging deep into the research, trying to uh, share with both professionals and parents what the research says. One of my frustrations is that one, there isn't a lot of research, but two, the research that does exist often doesn't distinguish between dissolutions and disruptions. And and I, I, I think I understand the reason, or maybe I don't understand the reasons why I should ask. Why is that? Why does so much of the research co- conflate the two to me? And to me, there are different things. Well, the challenge is that the research doesn't really keep up with the lives of our families. So most of it is quite short term, only lasts for maybe 18 months or three years. And um, and very little of it really follows what happens when kids um, end up in a displacement where they leave the home and then 
that may result in a dissolution later or it may not. Uh, so there are a lot of challenges in the research, but I guess the, the general answer to that is that dissolutions generally take longer to occur. And so we don't measure them as well because people don't want to wait around for a, a one month old who gets adopted to um, have a dissolution when they turn 16 and the family decides they have to give up their parental rights because they can't pay for the residential care needs, for example, of the child, and they want the public child welfare agency to take that child back. So we probably miss almost all of those because the research we do is very short term. Disruptions, on the other hand, happen sooner. Um, they happen usually, uh, adoptions tend to get finalized within three to five years after the child comes to live in foster care. So they tend to be more often discussed and under the microscope um, because they're in the agency's purview and in the agency's data. Yeah. Okay. That's that. That was and and all just the sheer the timing and the just the sheer number. There are more, as you would imagine, more disruptions um, than there are failed. You raise an an, an interesting uh, uh, question, and that is, um, we see these uh, our our adoption dissolutions or failed adoptions more common with older child adoption, or do you see them pretty evenly spread uh, across all types of adoption? I don't think we have really a great sense of that because we um, tend, again, not to know as much about the older child situations. Those families may have been disconnected from the agency that placed the child. If it was internationally, they're completely disconnected. And even if they were in um, public child welfare agencies or private agencies working with your county or state agency, Often by the time a child's been adopted for a long time, we don't know, um, we don't follow them very well. I suspect that um, more of them are occurring when uh, for older kids and more of them are occurring when there's been something that has happened, an exchange between the child and the family that's considered dangerous to the child or to the family um, and that results in having to have the child live temporarily elsewhere in a psychiatric facility or juvenile services or a residential treatment program. Um, and that as that kind of doesn't succeed, then they look for other alternatives. And one of those might be a legal um, dissolution. The one thing I do want to say, though, is that it's important to remember that um, most adoptions succeed. So even the most pessimistic views of adoption um, don't yield displacement rates. That is, kids who have to leave either by disruption or dissolution and go live someplace else um, that are anywhere near uh, 50%. They're um, lower than that. Um, and even for older kids, they're in the 20 or 30% range, um, which is too high for any of us to feel good about. But people should still be optimistic when they enter into an adoption that their adoption will not have a dissolution, a disruption, or as I call them, a displacement. And from what we see, and, and granted, and actually from the research that, although it, as you point out, there isn't a lot, um, it is significantly more common with older child adoption 
than with infant adoption. But I, I couldn't, I don't think that there are good uh, statistics on how often it happens. Certainly, we know that age is a, uh, it's, uh, it's cor- correlates highly with an increase in the rate of displacement. Um, it correlates very highly, yes, indeed. Yeah. Um, and, and why are you specifically using the term displacement? So uh, there are a lot of things that happen in adoption. Um, sometimes you succeed beautifully. Sometimes kids run away and go live with uh, their prior family. Uh, sometimes um, a child goes into a residential boarding program. Sometimes they go to residential care. Sometimes um, to live with a previous foster family. So there are, there are things that happen where the child is no longer in the home as intended uh, and as everybody hoped, but that doesn't mean that they failed or that um, there was some legal action that, that is taken. Uh, it doesn't mean that they're going around town saying, this is a great experience, everybody should try this, because it's painful for families not to have things work out the way that you hope. But on the other hand, life is long. Uh, I know lots of stories of kids who have um, – rejoin their adoptive families in their 20s or become part again and understood what the family was offering them, um, even though they might have experienced some period of what I would call displacement. Even dissolutions. Um, there are kids who um, come back to live with their adoptive families even after parental rights have been terminated. So uh, that's why I tend to want to use a term that sounds a little less permanent. Steve, I know you have um, had a lot of legal experience with families who are in the process of dissolving their adoption. Just off the top of your head, what are some of the reasons that uh, the more common reasons that families are throwing in the towel, if in fact they are throwing in the towel? Because I think as as, uh, Dr. Barth has pointed out, sometimes they're, they're less throwing in the towel than seeking uh, better help for their child and they're still involved in the child's life or hope to be? Well, certainly we have a problem because we don't have post-adoption resources readily available for people that are having problems. In Wisconsin, we have a problem, I think, getting adequate respite care for families that need it. But if you're talking about, this is anecdotal, not based on research like uh, Dr. Barth is presenting, Parents' expectations of the child in the process are not met. I mean, to that end, we have advocated for forms of adoption education to be written into the statute or the administrative code to require uh, that these people listen to others talk about what they're going to be dealing with adoption. Uh, that So I think parents' expectations uh, generally about adoption are not met. The child may not be a child that uh, behaves the way they expected it. Uh, The child may have significant undisclosed physical or mental health problems that the parents were not prepared to deal with and don't know how to deal with. For older children, oftentimes it's when they've had serious trouble with law, school authorities, or they're receiving uh, mental health treatment or physical health uh, treatment that uh, the uh, parents don't believe they can continue, thus they end up uh, and, and, and end up looking for other solutions that will take the burden off them for raising the child. Uh, I will say you mentioned placement of older children. I think a cause uh, 
has to do with the background of the children that are being placed. Now, this is, again, anecdotal, but uh, we had a very large number of, um, we'll call them disruptions, although they were also dissolutions. We'll, we use Dr. Barr's term displacement, which I like as a better term anyhow. Uh, we had a real problem with placements from the Soviet Union, A, because there was a lot of health background that wasn't disclosed and there were a lot of health problems that the kids got from their biological parents. Uh, B, the orphanage setting wasn't particularly good in some of the orphanages in international adoption. There's no, there's no touch, there's no holding, there's no love, there's no talking to babies. Uh, the babies are more warehoused than they are cared for. Uh, that's created a problem. And I think that uh, people that are adopting internationally sometimes don't appreciate the difficulty they're going to have with a child that has had multiple fire, uh, prior placements or has had uh, a background that is very difficult to overcome in terms of the amount of baggage that's being brought in. Uh, I think that those are some of the things that we see anecdotally as being uh, causes of the problem. I, I'll mention one other one. Um, one of the requirements that I have as a firm before I'll participate uh, in working on a dissolution or uh, disruption, I want to make sure that the family has at least tried therapy with the child. And we normally involve the therapist in how to deal with the movement of the child. Uh, I would say that most of the families we see have been to therapy for some time, but we have some families that have never utilized any form of therapy and they're throwing in the towel. And we have some, I have difficulty dealing with those. Uh, we think that therapy uh, progress can solve some of these problems uh, and maybe make the family harmonious once again. Um, but for whatever reason, sometimes families decline to engage in it. And there are other causes too. Sometimes um, it's not the child and the child's mental health issues or physical health issues. Sometimes it's it's the parents themselves, just like birth parents, not everybody is an instinctive parent. Uh, we don't have parent training to speak of. Uh, and sometimes parenting methods, parenting skills are caused, uh, called into question that create some of the problems that we see in the relationships between uh, the, the potential adoptee or adoptee. Let me just take a moment to pause here to remind everyone that this show is brought to you by the support of our underwriter. And uh, our uh, underwriter is Jockey Being Family Foundation. Uh, they are looking for adoption agencies who want to provide continued support to their families after adoption. A good segue into what was uh, just said by uh, Steve Hayes. Um, their mission is to provide uh, post-adoption support to families. And one way they do that is through their backpack program. They provide newly adopted children with their own backpack, personalized with their initials and filled with, for the child, a stuffed bear and a warm, cuddly blanket. But for the parents, there is a tote bag uh, containing parenting resources uh, for the child and for before the parents, specifically geared towards that child. So if you are listening and you know of an agency that is not a, and is not a part of this wonderful free resource, have the agency contact 
jockeybingfamily.com. Go to that website, jockeybeingfamily.com, and click on Backpack Program, and there is a form that the agency could fill out, and I strongly encourage you to do that. Dr. Barth, uh, Steve mentioned managing expectations, and I want to come back to that because you and I have talked about this before. Um, it seems so often that, and, and I, I speak as, a, as an adoption educator, and that's our goal is to prepare and, and, and families and help them have realistic expectations. So I, I personally feel like it's a failure when, when that doesn't happen if we have failed families. So how can we help families come up with a, a, a realistic expectation of what parenting this child is going to be like? And I, I think that we can safely focus more on, on families adopting older kids, but perhaps not perhaps uh, just in general, children? It's very challenging to set your expectations at the right level and to try to keep them there as time goes by. I think that most people have this inclination to let their expectations drift back towards what their experience was as a child or what their siblings' experiences or what their nieces and nephews' experiences are. And as Steve said, there's a lot of traumatic experiences and often um, under stimulation and other things which change the way that a child is going to process information, whether that's educational information or information that they're getting in their relationships with family members. One of the biggest risks for adoption disruption turns out to be the adoptive parents or dissolution is the adoptive parents' uh, dissatisfaction with their child's educational progress, basically their frustration. Adoptive parents often are pretty well educated because they have to be to get through the um, challenges of the adoption process. And they put a lot of, they have a lot at stake in the educational performance of their kids. And they hope that they can, through their extra enrichment and extra knowledge, um, accelerate their child's learning so that they catch up to um, their nieces and nephews and their vision about what a third grader should be or what a first grader should be or what a seventh grader should be. And hard to manage that, but um, I think what what I see and what I've learned personally as an adoptive parent is that the most important thing really is the relationship to the child, that if a child is um, feeling relatively secure about their where they are and the school they go to and some comfort there, that um, that's going to be more important than uh, exactly how they perform. Um, oh, amen. Expectations <laughs> are um, wanting this child to go to college, wanting this, worrying about this child's uh, high school graduation. Um, it turns out actually that what we've always known of as blue collar families, although all these concepts are changing, have better outcomes in adoption than do white collar families. And I think that's because they often have a broader set of options for kids that if you don't really want to be a, a great student, um, there are all kinds of other things that make life satisfying. And it's really important to manage those educational expectations, perhaps as much as anything. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up because, and, and just to reiterate the point you made that 
it's all about the relationship and and we've got to let our expectations of school go. I will say that that often parents' expectations around school is based on fear and 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 the fear is this child will never be able to support herself. This child is going to be living in my basement forever. This child will never will never be able to to function in our society. And that's that's the underlying fear. You're right. I mean, sometimes it's what are people going to think think of me when I have a child that didn't graduate from high school type of thing. But I think a lot of times it's a fear based response. Um, and uh, and and what we can tell you is that there's a lot of different ways to make it in the world, and it's not necessarily going to be your way, uh, but that it also isn't necessarily going to be a child uh, living in your basement at the age of 40. Uh, so I, I do think that, that uh, broadening our idea of what we mean of, by success is, is vital, success in the world is vital. Um we have been talking about the, the reasons for uh, adoptions uh, displacing or failing. I just wanted to say that seldom in my experience are, there phys- are the physical issues the child presents the reason that parents struggle. Almost always it is the emotional reasons. And I think that is surprising to a lot of parents at the very beginning. Um, but uh, that's, we certainly see that. And, and the other thing is that I, I, I want to, to stress that while we're talking about the reasons for disruption, it's easy to, to fall into, the, into the, the blame game where we're blaming the child. Uh, because as uh, Steve said, these kids often come with a real deficit. But I, I do think that parents need to look at themselves and say, what did I bring to this table as well? And expectations and unrealistic expectations is certainly one of them. Um, let's talk some, uh, Dr. Barth, about the impact of trauma, because almost all children, in fact, I would venture to say that all children adopted in an older age have experienced some trauma. Well, yeah, trauma is... Um is problematic because it has an effect on a child's executive functioning, the way that their brain stores information, their working memory, um, their ability to inhibit themselves or their self-control and often their attention, their ability to focus. And those three things may not all be affected the same way. And, and the problems may emerge at different points in their life, but, they are all at risk when kids have experienced um, trauma of lots of change, being scared, um, harm, like through abuse, uh, fear of, of starvation or not eating, um, all of those things. Well, and it just the act of being removed from, uh, from whatever place they were and put in your home. You know, we don't want to think about it as traumatic, but in fact, it is. It is indeed, and there's a you know a relatively small proportion of those kids who will end up with a phobia. Um, they will actually become fearful of certain objects, and they may need um, some kind of trauma intervention like cognitive behavior uh, CBT plus or trauma focused cognitive behavior therapy that has um, a particular focus on uh, these fears, but 
most of the time, even kids who have been come out of the child welfare system and come into foster care don't have traumatic symptoms per se, but they do have some of these um, executive functioning issues and they may just really be cautious about making relationships, about being harmed, um, very sensitive to stimuli. And sometimes that does dissolve over time. Um, and very often it does, but that's a good place where therapy for kids can also be helpful, especially if there turn out to be some uh, phobias that are involved. We throw around the term reactive attachment disorder way too often, in, in my opinion. Um, but uh, let, but I do think attachment is um, remembering, and of course, that attachment falls on the spectrum. But I do think attachment is is an important topic, and, and certainly it's on the minds of most adoptive families because parenting a child who is not attached is is hard, and it's not. And that give and take and that reward that parents get is often absent. Um, so let's talk a little about uh, attachment issues and how they might impact or what parents can do in advance to prepare for attachment struggles so that they aren't uh, so thrown off balance and, and uh, that they're, they're, they're not able to parent this child for the long term. So attachments are basically relationships and um we all have our uh, proclivities, our tendencies towards the kinds of relationships we like. Um, and I think one of the first things to work on is to be thinking about what we expect in our relationships, what we're comfortable with, how much variation there is between us and our partners or us and our family members, and that this is not something that's um, uh, that's predictable and that you really have to kind of understand your own um, securities and insecurities about how you relate to people to prime yourself to do the same for the child and to look at your relationship with the child with some broader perspective. So you aren't just thinking that there's one kind of relationship to have with this child. I think the um, issues of um, allowing kids to be able to explore um, to follow their own lead at times, um, not necessarily to be able to follow your lead or interact with you in the ways that you want, are also critical at sort of at the interface between your expectations for how you're going to interact with this child and how much pleasure or benefit you're going to get, how soon uh, after a child comes to live with you, and the you know attachment world. So um, the expectations for what that relationship are going to be are certainly critical to how you feel about whether or not this relationship, whether this adoption was a good idea and whether you remain open to some of the rejection um, that you're going to get along the path, you know, very possibly towards a better relationship. And another thing that, that often uh, throws families for a loop is the lack of insurance coverage for mental health or the lack of adequate resources and the family's ability to pay for them. Steve, how common is that a, an issue in your experience with uh, adoption disruptions, not just in your state, but from what you see throughout the U.S.? Well, I think I, I don't 
I don't see health insurance or lack of it as being a major problem. You, you, I think, correctly pointed out earlier that physical health of the child wouldn't be a major reason for a cause. I was mainly referring to mental health coverage. Yeah, mental health coverage is different. With mental health coverage, you've got uh, some some policies have very generous mental health coverage. Others have very restrictive coverage, or you're given coverage for X number of visits, and the child may need well more than that. So from a treatment standpoint, because of the lack of uniformity in coverages, yes, that can be a problem for mental health issues. Uh, And we see that as maybe not a reason to outplace a child, but certainly something that puts stress on the parents in terms of taking care of the issues they need to take care of for their child. Uh, I don't I don't see it as a, a cause of disruption, for example, but I do see it as a cause of stress to the parents when you have disparate coverages. Your neighbor may have six months of continuous coverage for a mental health issue, including inpatient, and the other one may not have that kind of coverage, may have you know three visits at a psychologist level or something like that, and they're done. I think that's a problem. It'd be nice see more uniformity to allow mental health treatment uh, expectations of parents to be met. You know, where we see it more often would be um, families who are struggling. They believe their child needs to be in residential care. They don't have the mental health component of their insurance either won't cover it or it covers it for such a short time that it is not, it's not effective. And they, and, and families who, who believe that their child needs this feel like if they terminate their parental rights, i.e. disrupt the adoption, uh, I'm sorry, dissolve the adoption, they would uh, more, that, that their child then would be able to get these services. Um Dr. Barth, do you see that as a, uh, how often is that the cause that, of why families are seeking to displace their child? I think that's a major cause, um, custody relinquishment in order to get ongoing residential care. Um, some states are really good about that. If a child's been in foster care, they're willing to adjust your adoption subsidy, for example, to a higher level to cover most of the things you need, but residential care then becomes so expensive that unless special provisions for residential care, um, even with a higher adoption subsidy, it becomes unaffordable. Some states like Texas um, have passed specific uh, statutes and put funds behind them just to address this custody relinquishment uh, problem. And Texas isn't a state that I think of as being in a hurry to add um, additional services necessarily. They tend to like to do things kind of in a a more bare bones way, but they started to see this as a major issue for uh, their adoptive families who they've long been committed to and so um, have come through with innovative um, statute reforms uh, related to this. So I think it's a big piece and um, I know we're trying as a country to move away from 
residential care, um, and that's a good thing. But there are still kids who are running away, getting involved with um, oh, uh, sexual um, trafficking, um, not through their own fault necessarily, but still need some protection, um, are perhaps involved with some self-harming or other harming, who do need at least temporarily um, more assistance. And if those temporary problems start to repeat over and over, then families will run out of resources and really have very little choice. Yeah, we're certainly feeling that way. Um, another thing that we see is that uh, contributes to disruption is uh, issues between the new child and children already in the family. And again, a fear-based response uh, of needing or the, of, of fearful that that uh, the the new child is uh, and new could be is is a relative term because they could have been there for a while could harm the children already in the family. Thoughts, Dr. Barth, on what we can do uh, in advance to help families think through these potential issues. Well, that is a significant challenge, and one of the constellations and families that we looked at many years ago, and I think it still holds true, is when, um, especially when siblings are moved into a household that already has one or two children, trying to make sure that the quality of the relationship with the kids coming in is strong, um, even while the parents are a little bit protective of their um, birth children may be inclined to treat them differentially. Um, I don't have a great sense about that, except I would say uh, the idea of getting into family therapy, which Steve mentioned, is a really critical one. And the other piece in some of our research, it's not real definitive, but uh, I think the findings were pointing in that direction is being in parent support groups. So very often parents who have been down this path have lots of good ideas for parents who are starting down the path. And so I, I wouldn't try this alone. Let's put it that way. <laughs> uh, I would do this with um, the help of a family therapist in a preventive way, not after the crisis starts, but knowing that this is challenging enough so that everybody's voice gets heard. One of the things family therapists are good at is making sure that all the kids and family members, that their voice gets heard because sometimes the one group or another will get drowned out. And the other thing is I do think that adoption parent support groups are, are absolutely um, invaluable. I couldn't agree with you more. And, and I will say that uh, certainly in person uh, is important. And uh, one of the things that uh, we're doing here at Creating a Family is creating, is creating curriculum for uh, support groups because we realize that uh, one, of the re- one of the main reasons that support groups fail, don't continue, is because of burnout on the facilitators. And so anything that we can do um, to get good curriculum in their hands so that it takes some of the work off of them is helpful. So I, I just couldn't agree with you more on the importance of support groups. And if you can't find one in person, uh, online, or in addition, online as well as in person. And there's many, many online groups uh, that you can join, uh, including the uh, Creating a Family has an online group as well. John, I've got a a follow-up thought on that. The idea of having a biological family and then bringing in adopted children. We have had several cases where I believe that has been 
a significant factor for the adopted children not blending in well with the family. We've also had many cases, and I have many friends, where they've had a couple of biological children and they adopt, say, from abroad, and it's worked out just fine. But connected with that, uh, one of the things that we've had, an observation that we've had from the cases we've had, is that oftentimes parents, good-hearted parents or potential parents, will take in two kids or three kids at a time. And if those kids are older kids, we have had a fair number of cases where the fact they had multiple kids that sort of form a tag team against the parents sometime if they're older has created a problem and resulted in dysfunctionality, let's call it, within the family unit. Um, I don't think that social service agencies or others involved in the adoption process provide enough education to prospective adoptive parents on that subject. I mean, I can give you one quick example. We were just finishing with a case where uh, the people had had a child for the summer out of an orphanage from a European country. It worked out well for two or three weeks. They went back to adopt that child. And the judge in the other country said, if you want this child, you're going to have to take two more that are related. And they did. Well, it turned out to be a nightmare. And now all three of those children have been outplaced. And it has to do with this idea of adoption education and creating proper expectations for the parents. They didn't expect to have to take the additional two kids, but they didn't go over there with a clear game plan in mind. Had they been given advice by somebody ahead of time to say, this is the way this country works. Be careful with it. I think they might have avoided that problem. Yeah, uh, yeah, and and because they weren't expecting it, they they weren't able to prepare for it in advance. Right. They had to make an instantaneous decision. Good-hearted people that they were, they they elected to take all three kids in. So I, I'm not a big fan of multiple placements at the same time. Yeah, and, and unfortunately, we there's that that uh, there's tension there because we certainly it, it, within the U.S. foster care system there is a big push to keep siblings together. So that very often happens where we will place siblings now, not last minute the way that ha- the, the scenario you mentioned that's different, but uh, where families are encouraged uh, to take uh, if they to take a sibling group because that's where the need is. So then the, then the challenges for those of us who are trying to educate families is to uh, prepare the family for the realities of, of adopting more than one at the same time. Because that's a whole, that's a whole di- different, as my grandmother would say, kettle of fish. Dr. Barth, at some point, is, if, if a family, how does a family know that they've given, given it their all, that they've reached the point where... Uh, ad- adoption, dissolution, or displacement is in the best interest for everyone? Or should they, or, or does that, or is that never a point that you should ever like, throw in the towel? Sometimes I think it has to be figured out that your entire family is at risk if you continue to try to keep a child and integrate them into your household. So 
we know that families divorce um, sometimes over this period when they're struggling to figure out what to do about a child. We know that sometimes other children in the household do poorly or are victimized or are concerned about being at home because there's a child who's really upset, uh, adopt a child who may be um, uh, saying or doing threatening things. So all of these are um, major risks and they have to be taken seriously. I think um, that families need some cooling off time. Uh, how to get that is sometimes hard to say. Sometimes you can get it through a crisis response program. If you're lucky, you live in a city or county where uh, before a child is hospitalized or um, even if they've been arrested or before your family uh, needs some other kind of intensive treatment, there's some in-home services that are provided, some family therapy, some respite care, something um, other than hospitalization or incarceration. And though sometimes um, you may get counseling from people that it just doesn't seem like it's safe now for all of you to be together and you need a break. Uh, I agree that you shouldn't give up before you've really done some serious work looking at your family and what your strengths are and how much you can do. Um, I think it's important to call on other resources whenever possible, other family members, even biological family members um, who may have come around, may have changed their lifestyle since the time a child was adopted to see whether they can uh, be a resource for you. So you don't have to go through a dissolution, but you may have a displacement and you may end up working together with them to try to find a good alternative for, for a child. So it's a, it's a hard call. Um, but there are a lot of resources around in the children's behavioral health world um, to help. And, and then uh, I think a navigator type therapist who can bring you through this who has experience with adoption is a critical piece. So I've heard two things. One, get, a, get into family therapy if you're not. Um, and this is not just send the kid at this point. This is the family, including the parents, need to be seeing a therapist to help them navigate this really turbulent waters that they're in. And the other uh, uh, piece of advice was find a way to have a cooling off time. And you're right, it is challenging. Um, respite care is hard to come by, but, uh, but ho hopefully... Um, with the Families First Act, there will be more funds available for some of this to give you the uh, respite care or uh, this cooling off. Um, getting family members, uh, whether they be family members in your family or family members in uh, the child's biological family, uh, assuming that they are, uh, that things have changed and it's a safe thing to do, would be uh, would be helpful just to give you time to make a decision. And, and honestly, that's sometimes how people use respite care. Um, we know that respite care may not be the most effective for children. Uh, most often, most often, it's not the most effective uh, treatment for children, but it does give parents and the family a, that cooling off period. So that's another way of, if you can afford it, <clears throat> excuse me, getting, um, getting a, a care. All right, Steve, who should the family first contact when they've made up their mind and they say, 
we we can't we just this is it's no longer working for anyone in the family and we believe that the damage is outweighing any good that can possibly happen okay assuming they've gone through appropriate therapy which i would say is sort of the first line of defense i think they should contact a lawyer that has some experience with adoption to take a look at legal options that may include outplacement without terminating parental rights. You might use a custodial power of attorney, for example, if you have a relative that might be able to take care of the child for a while. We've had some situations where we've had a relative take over raising a child. It made the child happier, and it made the relative happy, and it made the other family happy. Take a look at guardianship as an option rather than a termination of parental rights. Uh, Each state has its own set of rules about how you undo an adoption if we're talking about a dissolution. There's a lack of uniformity among the states, and each state, not the federal government, makes these rules. For example, in Wisconsin, in order to undo an adoption, you have to go through the same sort of termination of parental rights procedure that freed the child for adoption in the first place, if the child was a domestic or a Wisconsin child. Some states have a statute that allows you to get relief from judgment based on fraud within a certain period of time. I think New York and Ohio and Rhode Island are three states that allow that. What type of fraud are we talking about? We would be talking about situations, particularly foster care situations, where the background information about the child was not shared with the prospective adoptive parents. Let's hypothetically say that at age five, a little girl was sexually abused and that information was in the file, but not passed on to the uh, prospective adoptive parents. Under those facts, depending on the law in your state, you may have a right to go back to court and get a get relief from the judgment. There are other states that, much like divorce, allow you to annul an adoption. Um, And there are a handful of cases around the country that deal with adoption annulment. One of the things that people need to be aware of is that courts, once an adoption occurs, believe that just like a birth child, you've now created a parent-child relationship that should not be terminated. So judges oftentimes are very reluctant to grant a termination of parental rights unless there is an adoptive resource that's already been identified or an alternate placement for the child if it isn't going to be an adoption that is suitable for the court. So you you have to get uh, a decision normally supported by a therapist To undo an adoption, you have to take a look at the state law to see what methods are available to undo the adoption. In almost every case, unless the child is a candidate for institutional care, you're looking at having to find an adoptive resource before the court's going to grant the termination of parental rights or the dissolution of the adoption using an annulment method. Okay, so each state is going to be different as to to what you can do. And then, and then, so you need to follow the state law. So you said one of the first steps is to contact an attorney that is knowledgeable about adoption law. 
And let me stress that this is not necessarily, in fact, often is not the same thing as your cousin's brother, who is a family law attorney. So, Steve, how would people find an attorney that specializes in adoption law? Uh, the easy way would go, be to go to the uh, Academy of Adoption and Assisted Reproduction Technology Attorneys because you have to meet certain qualifications to be invited to be in the academy. Uh, and those qualifications, <clears throat> among other things, require a lot of experience with a certain number of cases, interstate cases, uh, in-state cases, uh, and you know those people will have at least met the experience requirements to get into the academy, and that should be enough to give them the ability to answer certain questions like this. However, adoption, disruption, and dissolution is not, I'm going to call it a mainstream or frequent activity of adoption lawyers. We, we happen to get a lot of them in part because I, several years ago I wrote an article on it in a prominent magazine. I get people that find me through the internet and some of them are from other states. I can't help them because you need a lawyer from your own state to work on it. If, by the way, you're using an adoptive resource eventually for placement of the child in another state, we often end up with two lawyers from the academy, one from the sending state and one from the receiving state, getting together on the phone to work out the details of how this is going to work. You have to remember when you can't just hand off the child to somebody else, there has to be a vetting process that most courts are going to require that includes a home study, just like you would if you were doing an initial placement. So if it's a relative, you may not need the home study, but it isn't necessarily, I'm frustrated with the child. I need to move the child now I'm giving the child to somebody in another state. There's a collection of laws laws called the Interstate Compact for Placement of Children. So if you're moving a child from Wisconsin to Illinois for placement for the purpose of adoption, you may need to comply with the rules of the Interstate Compact, which each state has adopted before you can just move that child to another state. Lawyers in the academy would know about that, and there are other lawyers that aren't in the academy that have had a lot of adoption experience, I suppose, that have chosen not to be in the academy or haven't been invited in yet. It may also be of help. I would say if you go to a juvenile court uh, administrative clerk or a judge there, they would be good resources to get information about who locally might be qualified to give advice on that subject. But as a starting point, I'd go to the American Academy of Adoption Attorneys. Uh, that's new. That's the old name for it. Website, and they list attorneys in the academy by state, and you can get some information about their credentials and contact information as well. Yes, right. that's a great website. All right. Now you mentioned that that very often you have to have a a placement for the child and that often you are working with an adoption resource. What do you mean by that, Stephen? And how do you find, and what is an adoption resource and how do you find it? Um, because you, do you need help in finding a family, assuming that there isn't a, a relative uh, in your family that is, that is stepping forward? Yes. They're a very good question. And it's a hard question to give you a concrete answer on. There are not a lot of places 
that want to get involved in second placements or what some people called rehoming of children. In some cases, the agency that gets involved may have to assume guardianship or other form of legal responsibility for the child because the first case has not worked out. They're reluctant to get involved with a child whose initial placement didn't work out. But there are places, and they're getting to be a couple of more that we became aware of at the recent uh, conference for our academy members that are now uh, serving as placement resources. One is Second Chance Adoptions, which is out of Utah. It's a part of the Wasatch Adoption Agency, and they've done a lot of placements uh, around the country. They vet well. Uh, They have experience, and uh, I think they do a pretty good job of getting the adoptive resource in place. We've had, there was an article uh, that Reuters ran a couple years ago about some bad placement choices in rehoming, and I think the articles had some misinformation in them, and they had some good information or both, but I think it created an, an atmosphere among legislators where they felt they had to do something to solve this problem. And and I think that's the wrong place to go for the solution. In Wisconsin, for example, <clears throat> they rushed to get a law passed, and the law they passed was you cannot go on the Internet to find an adoptive resource. That's not the issue. How you make your contact is much less important than have you properly vetted them, have they had a home study done, is this a good placement? Uh, so what they did is take away one of the ways that people, uh, support groups and otherwise, will go online to see if they can get somebody that can help them. Uh, but the law was well-intentioned but didn't solve the problem. It attacked the wrong issue. And I think that we tend to be legislative reactive rather than thinking ahead to see how are we going to generally deal with this problem in the future? And that was the outcome uh, in Wisconsin and a couple of other states that rushed to get something passed to make sure this wouldn't happen in the state. It- so in other words, what we people need to do is talk with their attorney and first and find out what the law is in your state yeah. and then work with, find out, and actually hopefully the attorney might know, <clears throat> excuse me, that what agencies, because often it is adoption agencies. What about turning, going to the state, uh, the, your county foster care? You could. Uh, and, and saying, I'm, I'm, I'm not able to parent this child. What are some of the upsides and downsides to that, Steve? It, it is, it's an appropriate solution to consider in some cases. I'm not a fan of that solution unless there is no other choice, because the outplacing family loses control over the child and the county begins making decisions for the child that may not be good. They may be good decisions, but they may not be good. And you remember the family probably loves this child. It just did not work out for them. They don't like to see Uh, situations where they may be getting no information at all. If you end up in the state system, another consequence for the outplacing family is that they then may be required to pay child support for the the child's 
new family. And that's not something they normally consider when they make the outplacement decision in the first place. And it can be a significant decision <clears throat> if it's the only child that's been outplaced that they've had in Wisconsin under our old law, 17% of the family's gross income would be used, uh, would be taken for the purpose of providing child support. So it can be a significant economic decision. If the child is placed in a uh, residential treatment facility or institutional care, the outplacing family may be required to pay at least a portion of the care for the child as long as the child remains in that setting. These are issues that I think are overlooked when the families are considering the outplacement decision in the first place. But, but your question is very, it's a very good question to ask, what about the alternative state intervention? States do normally have laws that say, even if the state people, the intake people for a county decide not to take a child into care, they don't think there's an adequate justification for it. Most states have an alternative where you can bring a petition in children's court to say, this child is out of control for us, please take over. You end up with a court hearing on the subject to see if you can persuade the court that indeed it's time for the county to take over or the state to take over. You may win or lose that hearing. But you're, you're correct in pointing out that is an alternative if you cannot find an adoptive resource and it may be that you simply can't locate the right person or you have a child that because of the child's history is virtually unplaceable because nobody wants to take in a, a child that's attempted to burn down the family or attempted to kill a parent or something like that. So, mm -hmm. Good question. So, well, another thing that parents are fearful of is being found uh, uh, as negligent. And the fear that they have is that if they go to the, their county uh, child welfare and say, we can, we can no longer parent this child, that the county welfare may say, well, then you're, you're, the only way you can do it is if we find you negligent. And if we find you uh, negligent or and, and causing neglect, then we will take all the children in your family. Yeah. How realistic of a fear is that? Is that, is that blown out of proportion or is, can that, is that a realistic concern? I think it's, uh, in many cases, it would be unlikely to happen, but I can understand the family having the fear that it could. Uh, mm -hmm. But uh, if, they, if the other kids in the family are doing okay, the county normally isn't going to try and take yet another child uh, after the first one has been placed in a county resource of some kind. So I think I can understand why people would have that fear, but it would be unlikely to happen with frequency. It is possible, but if the other kids are being well cared for, normally that wouldn't happen. I will say one thing. I, th I think the system, it's a hard system to get involved with because there's finger pointing. And you talked earlier about fault mm -hmm. and finding yeah. fault. Uh, here, what the what the outplacing family has to face is criticism for their not being good parents uh, mm -hmm. or that this is in some way their fault. They often don't get a lot of sympathy from the social services people that they meet 
uh, and in part because we've had this change of philosophy over the last 30 or 40 years where we that do adoptions want adopted children to be treated exactly like birth children are, no distinctions. But in, in real life, there are those distinctions, at least psychologically among some people. And you have now this conflict when a caseworker takes the case, are you going to treat this family as though this is a birth child or an adopted child? Would they be treated differently? Sometimes that mm-hmm. creates a, a sense of negative feelings on the part of the outplacing family. And, and sometimes perhaps fault is there. But I, my job as a lawyer isn't to make a judgment on fault. My job is to see that the child gets into a permanent and and stable placement in the future if this first one isn't working out. That's why we involve the therapist. I normally have my clients sign a release so I can call the therapist and talk to the therapist. Again, I'm not the one that's supposed to be making a judgment here, but let's say the therapist comes back and says, you know, this kid's doing pretty well. They've had some rough sledding recently because of X and Y. I'd be inclined to raise that with the family, even though I'm supposed to be an advocate for their position Ultimately, you've got a child at risk here, and the decision to outplace is going to have a traumatic effect on the child. I'm really glad you raised that point about the traumatic impact on the child, because we are coming to the end. But I did want to, there's there's one last question that I think we should end on, and I'd like to direct this to you, Dr. Barth. If you believe, if as a parent, that an adoption is going to fail, what steps should you take to make it less damaging to the child? Or is that just a, a, an unrealistic wish because you don't want the responsibility of, of adding further damage? Or are there things that you could do that might make it easier? Well, I think it's critical all the way through to try to make it clear that it's not a child's fault, that things aren't going well in their household, that the experiences they've had and the experiences you've had as parents um, may not have aligned, but they, it's not their fault that they have having difficulties in your household and um, that there can be much success in life, even after difficult challenges where you feel like there's something that's wrong with you or, and you wonder why things keep going badly um, that time um often can address those things and that people can do better and that you're going to do everything you can to stay connected with them in ways that's good for all of you, um, but also to see them into a more positive time. Yeah, I, I, good. Thank you. Thank you for that somewhat optimistic, uh, not optimistic, but realistic way that we still, even as parents, we still have to be, even though we are at our wits end, we still as a parent need to consider what we can do to make this the least damaging as it can possibly be. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Rick Barth and Steve Hayes for being with us today to talk about this subject, which is, which is, you know, let's be honest, is a hard one. So thank you so much. Let me remind everybody that the views expressed in this show are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the position of creating a family. Our partners are our underwriters. Also, keep in mind that the information given in this interview is general advice. To understand how it applies to your specific situation, you need to work with your adoption professional. 
And it, this show would not happen without the generous support of our partners, some of our wonderful partners, and they believe in our mission of providing unbiased, accurate information are Adoptions from Shepherd Care. They are a nonprofit adoption agency founded in 1980, providing domestic infant adoption, international adoption from Columbia, and domestic and Hague-approved international home studies. We also have Holt International, founded in 1956. They want every child to have a loving and secure home, and they have programs that strengthen and preserve families that are at risk of separating, and they also lead the global community in finding families for children who need them. Thank you for joining us today, and we will see you next week.